Well, good morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm struggling to work out what's true these days. I'm finding it increasingly difficult to know who to believe and what to believe. I trained as a journalist, and I can remember one morning our lecturer gave us a press release from the day before. It was from the Scottish government, and it was about car ownership in Scotland. The release contained statistics, data, and facts. Say, car ownership in Scotland. I studied in Glasgow. That's why we've got all these Scottish facts. Car ownership in Scotland had increased by 23% in the decade. But sales of purple cars were down by 67%. Our lecturer then grabbed every newspaper that had been published that morning. And we went through each one, found the story, and looked how that press release had been reported across the spectrum. You can imagine the range of headlines. Toxic fumes in Gulf Scotland as car ownership soars. That was the Guardian. <laughs> Through to Scottish car salesmen take home record bonuses as business booms. That's the Scotsman or the Financial Times. And Auto Trader had the headline, Violet Vehicles Vow They Will Make a Comeback. Obviously, those aren't quite the headlines. It is a long time ago. But I remember distinctly the realization that an objective truth, a fact, a stat, could be viewed in so many different ways. It all depends on your perspective, your social perspective, your political perspective. That's one thing. The same truth, fact, stat being reported with a different viewpoint, but things seem to have changed. Last month, Donald Trump said that in his final months in office, Barack Obama bugged his phones. The FBI and the CIA said he didn't. Trump then said that GCHQ, our British intelligence services, had been involved. They responded in typical British fashion and said that was utterly ridiculous. You see, that's why I'm struggling to work out what's true. You want to believe the President of the United States, but you also want to believe the intelligence services. But this doesn't seem to be a matter of perspective. One of them has to be lying. And whatever you think about them, we really don't know who's telling the truth. You wouldn't put anything past either of them. Truth is now fluid. Like so much else, the euphemism is fake news, or alternative facts. Not a lie, it's just different information. A story that turned out to not be true. Politicians call it spin. The Bible calls it sin. What is truth? What can you believe? What can we know for sure? Well, this morning, in the last part of our series on 1 John, John wants us to know. He doesn't say anything new here in this passage. He's dealt with all of it already previously in the book, but he restates it in closing. Why? Because he wants us to know. How do we know that he wants us to know? Well, just look down at the passage. Look at verse, eight, th verse 13 that you may know 
Verse 14, this is the confidence. Verse 15, and if we know, we know. Skip down to verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, and we know. So that we may know. And finally, three times, true, true, true. Can it be any more clear? John wants us to know, to have confidence, to have the truth. About what? Let's find out. Look down with me at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John makes reading his writings really easy. He tells you why he's writing it. He gives you a mission statement. At the end of his gospel, if you remember, in John chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. These are written so that you may believe or know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. At the beginning of 1 John, remember, back in January now, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. Well, here in verse 14, he gives us the culmination of the whole book, the thing that makes our joy complete, the fact that we can know we have eternal life. In the gospel, he wanted people to know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and therefore have new life. In 1 John, he wants that joy to be complete, to know that we have eternal life life. No religion on earth can give you an assurance of where you're going when you die. They're all just variants on a theme. Do more good stuff than bad. A deity will decide whether that's enough. And fingers crossed, hope for the best. But the gospel is different. With the gospel, you come to the cross of Christ where he made the once-for-all sacrifice. You can have your sins forgiven, completely dealt with, and you can know for sure that your eternal status has been assured by what Christ has done for you. So if you're a Christian here this morning, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, John says you can have complete confidence that you have eternal life. And that assurance, John will show us, permeates into four areas of life. It gives us confidence in prayer. It gives us protection from sin. It gives us security in this world. And it gives us an understanding of God. And then, as a footnote, it keeps us from idols. Five points. And these are five very unequal points time-wise, so don't worry after point number one, or even point number two. So firstly, this assurance of eternal life gives us confidence in prayer. Let's read verse 14 through to 17 again. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 
If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. If we know we have eternal life, John tells us that we can have confidence in approaching God in prayer to the point that there are certain things we can pray which we know he will hear and give us. Certain things in which God hearing is as good as us having. Now hold on a moment. This isn't daydream central. This isn't like a GTA cheat code where you press the right buttons in the right order and a Ferrari falls from the sky. What's the qualifying statement? If we ask anything according to his will. So we need to know God's will. Contrary to popular belief, we don't have to be some kind of spiritual water diviner to work out what God's will is. Kevin DeYoung has written a great book about God's will called Just Do Something. Here's the subtitle. How to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, or writing in the sky. I thoroughly recommend it. Dave Sims gave it to me about five and a half years ago. You can ask him later what I did after reading it. God's will is really easy to figure out. He reveals it in the Bible. The Bible gives some great summaries of it. Micah 6 verse 8 says this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's God's will. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. You can do that, and you can do anything you want. Now, that's just a summary. But in 1 John, we've seen some very specific parts of God's will. Let's take um, God's will for us to walk in the light. If you ask God to help you walk out in the open, remember, not having to be perfect, but not being hidden. If you ask God to expose your sin to you, done. God hears, God does. What else does God want for us? He wants us to confess our sins. In fact, back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God hears, God does, done. On and on we could go just through this book, putting sin to death, not loving the world, abiding in Christ, loving one another. These are all prayers we can pray that we clearly know are in accordance with God's will. If you pray according to God's will, he will hear. And he will give you it. Maybe not immediately. He may use a range of difficult, tough, hard circumstances to bring it about. But his will will be done. Isn't that a challenge? When was the last time you prayed asking God for something you already knew was his will? No, we're conservative evangelical. We know that when we ask God for something we want, we need to tag on to the end, if it's your will. 
We know that. But I've been challenged this week by the fact that I should pray much more in line with what I already know God's will is for me. Pray the prayers that are in the Bible. Not praying about what I want, but praying about what God wants me to be. John here gives us an example, but it's a tough example. Commentators are split on what these verses mean. I found at least three ways of interpreting it, which was great. But the key is that these verses aren't about unpardonable or pardonable sin, but about unpardoned or pardoned sin. Okay? We know that all sin leads to death. We can go all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. Adam and Eve disobey God, eat the fruit that they're forbidden to eat, and are cursed with death. And we fall under that curse too. So what's John talking about here? What sin doesn't lead to death? Wouldn't we all like to know? I hope it's speeding. That'd be so helpful. The sin that doesn't lead to death is simply the sin that's already been pardoned at the cross. The sin that doesn't lead to death for us, at least. All sin leads to death. It's either your death or Jesus' death. If you're a Christian here this morning, your sin doesn't lead to your death. It did lead to his death as he died as your substitute. But you will not die. We've already seen you have eternal life. So to these verses then. If you see a Christian sin, a Christian whose sins have been forgiven, therefore don't lead to death, pray that God would give them life. Done. Pray that they would walk in the light and confess their sin, and God will do it. But John goes on to say, don't pray about sin that does lead to death. What does he mean? Well, sin that does lead to death is unpardoned sin. Sin committed by those who aren't Christians. John says, I'm not saying that you should pray about that. He's not forbidding it, but it's clear that John doesn't think there's much point. Why? Okay, take someone who's a pathological liar. We're talking about things that we can know and the truth. I had a mate grown up who lied until he got himself into circles. I can remember one day he told me that his brother had died. And the next day, I bumped into his brother in town. It wasn't that he was lying for any particular purpose. He was a liar. Now, because John doesn't forbid praying that he'll stop lying, I can. The lies in his life were very destructive. They were ruining his relationships. He lied to everyone. So he was very close to having nobody left. He was lying in his job. He could have lost that. He was lying to the council. (laughs) Could have ended up in trouble with the law. I could pray for him to stop lying. But ultimately, what matters is not that he stops lying, but that he comes to meet the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ. And have all of his sins forgiven, including all of his lies, so that his sin no longer leads to death, but is taken by Jesus' death, and he instead can get eternal life. Do you see? It's okay to pray about, 
But what he needs most in his life is not the ability to tell the truth, but an encounter with the truth. This isn't John's main point, but it's important enough to pause for a second. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to hear this. You're so welcome here. And you're so welcome this morning just as you are. You don't need to change a thing. Please hear me when I say this. You don't need to smarten yourself up before you walk into this building. Before you come here, you don't need to try and make yourself any better at all. You do need to meet Jesus. I pray that you will. And when you meet him, he promises that you won't stay as you are. But you don't have to be anything other than yourself to come to him. And those of us who are Christians, this is a truth that I think we know, but we're not very good at living. How do we deal with the sin of those that we love who don't know Christ? People in our family, our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues. I think we get this wrong all too often. What we need to remember is that we don't need to pray that people start behaving. We need to pray that they come to Christ. Christ first, everything else after. So back to the main point. Knowing we have eternal life gives us confidence in prayer. Confidence that we can ask God for his will to be done, and it will. Confidence that we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in sin, and they will receive life. And confidence that we can pray the main thing for those who don't yet know Christ, praying that they will come to know him. So firstly, knowing we have eternal life gives confidence in prayer. Secondly, knowing we have eternal life gives us protection from sin. Look down with me at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We've seen throughout John that those who follow God do not sin. In chapter 2, verse 29, and in chapter 3, and he repeats himself here, but he adds that we are kept safe by the Lord Jesus. Jesus is praying for us. Remember in Luke 22, when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, he cites John 17, where Jesus says to his father, I pray that you protect them from the evil one. He said this, We live in the world as in a pest house. Christ prays that his saints may not be infected with the contagious evil of the times. When we are struggling against sin, Jesus is praying for us. He is praying that we would not sin. We can't come to ultimate harm because we have eternal life. Our future is secure. Isn't that an encouragement? When you're about to give in to temptation, 
when you feel like you can't do anything else, fly to Jesus who's already praying for you and know that he will keep you safe. And then in verse 19, we see thirdly that knowing we have eternal life gives us security in this world. Look at verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We live in enemy territory. The world is under the control of the devil. But what did we see last week? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Even though we're behind enemy lines, our commander can guarantee our safety. When John says the evil one here, let's be clear that we're not talking about a cartoon character in red tights with a pitchfork, goatee, and horns that knocks on your door and asks for sweets. There are two wrong Christian approaches to Satan. One is that the demonic world is not addressed enough, and the second is that it's addressed far too much. So let me just say this. The devil is real, and he has power. He has the world under his control, John tells us. But ultimately, he's on a leash. He can only go as far as God allows him to go. There's a spiritual war going on, but it's not like a football match where one team's putting on immense pressure, nearly scores, and then it flies down to the other end of the field, and then there's a counterattack. No. The result is already sure. The battle is won. When Jesus said it is finished, it was won. But until the judgment day, the devil controls the world as much as he's allowed to. But for Christians, we know that we're not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're children of God. So we're kept safe. Having an assurance of eternal life gives us security in this world. But fourthly, it also gives us an understanding of God. Just look at verse 20 with me, please. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This brings us back to this final cacophony of the three truths that John wants us to know. He's so emphatic that he can't help repeating himself. We know that the son of God, Jesus, has come. He came to earth from heaven. He came as a baby, God in flesh, a vulnerable infant. He was born in a town called Bethlehem in poverty. We can read the story of his life in the Gospels. Those are things that we can know. Historically, Jesus Christ is at least as well documented as Julius Caesar. His claims that he was the son of God, they're a different matter. We'll come to that. But we know that he existed Nobody here in this room doubts that uh, Julius Caesar was a real person who was a Roman dictator. We know that from history books. Those books are based on several sources. Julius Caesar wrote about himself. (laughs) That's helpful. 
and then two contemporaries, Sallust and Cicero, and two other historians, Suetonius and Plutarch, they both wrote about 100 years after Caesar died. Today, we have 12 manuscripts of Caesar's own writings, with the oldest dating from around 900 years after they were written. And we have 41 manuscripts from the other authors. They date from between AD 400, about 440 years after Caesar died, through to the 11th century. That's all great evidence. We know that Julius Caesar existed. On the, on the, on the other hand, the earliest gospel manuscript that we have today, it contains only a fragment of John 18, but that is from AD 125. That's a maximum of 65 years after it was written. We have full transcripts of all the Gospels from the 4th century. And altogether, compared to the total of just over 50 manuscripts verifying Julius Caesar's existence, that's 50, of the Gospels we have over 5,800 Daryl L. Bock, a professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, he says this, where does this leave us? It forces us to accept the presentation of Jesus in the Gospels as part of the ancient story. It shows us Christ's story is just as well attested as Caesar's. So, we know that Jesus has come. But those of us who have eternal life, we have been given understanding that reveals him to us and allows us to know him. This is mind-blowing stuff. Anyone can read the Gospels as a historical document, but if you're a Christian here this morning, there was a time when you read it and it all made sense. It all came together, not because you're clever, (laughs) You might be, not because you were able to work it out, but because God gave you understanding. I have been totally moved by this this week, that the creator God of the universe gave me an understanding of these historical facts and showed me what was behind it. And if you're a Christian here this morning, He's done exactly the same for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're interested in what's being said. You've begun to read the Bible. You'd like to know more, but you don't quite feel like you're getting it. Pray for understanding. Because when you understand, you're able to know God. You're able to enter into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can read the modern English translations of all those 5,800 manuscripts and through God-given understanding, not just verify that they're historically true, but by the grace of God, know that Christ's claims are true, that he is God and that we can come to his Father through him. 
And this section that started with John wanting us to know that we have eternal life comes to a close here with John telling us that Jesus is eternal life, just at the end of verse 20. In what ways is Jesus eternal life? Well, he is eternal. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus won eternal life for us by dying the death we deserve and rising again after three days. Jesus is alive now, and he will live and reign forever after he ascended to the right hand of his Father. But also, eternal life itself is all about him. I can remember John Piper preaching on this very topic in the first ever uh, New Word Alive that so many of our friends are at this morning. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Isn't that a challenge? Because don't get me wrong, a perfectly healthy body, that sounds good to me, with all my family, as someone who lives far away from home, all my friends, Korean Chinese buffets, constant games of football where someone like me never gets tired, with the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen, and no chance of it ever going wrong for any reason. Too often don't we think of that as heaven? That's because we so easily lose what heaven is all about. And if we lose what eternal life is all about, how easy will it be to lose what this life is all about? Heaven is all about Jesus. It's about spending eternity singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Jesus died so we might have life. His work on the cross gives us access to new life. His resurrection gives us eternal life. And the whole of that eternal life will be spent worshiping and praising and glorifying him in all we do. And if that doesn't sound appealing, then I think you may well have misunderstood the gospel and what he has done for you. The whole of eternal life will be for his glory, just like this life should be all about Jesus. Which is why verse 21 though it looks totally out of place and odd, is so important. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It seems like a very strange way to end. It's just tagged onto the bottom. John hasn't mentioned idols once in this whole book, and then he ends with them. 
David Jackman, he says that he's so glad that verse 21 is, is there because otherwise, 1 John would simply have a call to luxuriate in a bubble bath of Christian assurance. I don't know who makes that bubble bath. John does want us to know. He does want us to luxuriate in a bubble bath of Christian assurance. But he ends with a warning. Idols are just like fake news. They're just a story that turned out to not be true. Idols are anything that you worship that isn't Jesus. I don't mean that you bow down to it physically, but you do mentally and spiritually. We all do. Idols are whatever is the most important thing in your life. Good things that have become ultimate things. Things that promise so much but turn out to be lies. It could be your job. It's more likely to be the money that you make from your job. It could be your stuff, your car or your home. It could be your pet. It could be your wife. It could be your husband, although that seems unlikely. It could be the husband or the wife that you hope to have someday. But that's just, just the generic list, isn't it? It's most probably your comfort. Just the ability one day to come home and be able to take off your shoes, put up your feet, and relax without any hassle. It's not an everyday reality, but it might be what you want more than anything. I'll be honest, some days that's what I want more than anything. To come home, not have any work to do, and be able to sit down and have time for who? me. It's an idol. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your kids. Don't get me wrong. Of course, love your kids. I didn't know that I could love as strongly as I do now. But we're so often in danger of putting them on a pedestal, putting them above and beyond everyone and everything else, including Jesus. The logical conclusion of everything John has said in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, walk in the light, love one another, is this warning. Keep away from idols. All of these things that have listed, your job, money, your car, your home, your pet, your wife, your husband, your hopes and dreams for the future, having a bit of time for yourself, your family, your kids, they're all good things. They're gifts from God. Of course we should want them. But when you make them the ultimate thing, they only ever disappoint. They're stories that turn out to not be true. Unlike Jesus, who's true, true, true. So that's where John finishes. We can know that we have eternal life that gives us Confidence in prayer, protection from sin, security in this world, and understanding of God himself. And in our world, where it's becoming tougher and tougher to know what's true and what's not, John tells us 
that it's really simple. God in Christ Jesus is truth. Pursue him. And everything else is just a lie.